Revelations chapter 2. Revelations chapter 2. This is week 2 of the current series we're on called Letters to the Churches. Letters to the Churches. We're focusing on the seven churches that Jesus told John to send a message to in Revelations. And actually, like I mentioned last week, when you put all the things together that these churches were considered to be lacking in, it looks a lot like the church of today. I mean, he said that you've forsaken your first love, afflictions and poverty, allowing false teachers and practices, tolerating false prophets, has a reputation for being alive, but you're dead inside, not obeying God's command, you have little strength, and you're lukewarm. So these letters that um, Jesus gave to the churches were not just for those churches at the time. They were, it's a yes and, but they're also for us for today. Um, last week we jumped into Revelations 1. I wanted to start before we got into the first church and just look at the description of who John saw. The resurrected Jesus. You know, too often I think we end up becoming overwhelmed or overcome by our problems or our situations because we tend to focus on the just the Jesus hanging on the cross or the Jesus at the whipping post and we forget that that's not who he is today. So we need to get the fresh revelation of who he is now. Not forgetting what he has done, but don't forget who he is now. And Revelations 1 is a powerful description of who John saw, the resurrected Jesus. I mean, from the top of his head, which, see, I'm getting that way too. Um, the beautiful white, um, the crown of glory. No, um, and, you know, all the way down to his feet. And then even, I mean, you want to look at that more. Go over to, I think it's Revelations um, 19. Did I write it down somewhere? Um, yeah, I think it's in 19, where it's the rider on the white horse. And it talks about, you know, he is, you know, his robes dipped in blood, which is, you know, and, you know, the many crowns that he wears on his head and the tattoo across. No, okay, I won't go there. Anyway, um, and then last week we jumped into, we started at the first church was Ephesus, and there was there's positive, there's a warning, there's instruction, and there's a promise with every one of these churches. Um, and the positive thing, Jesus says, they had deeds of hard work and perseverance. They didn't tolerate wicked men. Um, they tested those who claimed to be apostles sent from God, but were not. Um, they endured hardships for his name. They hated the practices of the Nicolaitans, which those were the, the group of people that would try to woo their um, loyal hearts away from God. And they're still here today. Um, and then the warning was that they had forgotten their first love. They had forgotten their first love. See, they were doing all the things, but they weren't doing it out of love. And that's Old Covenant. When you when you have to do to be, instead of doing because you are. 
And Jesus, when he came and he addressed, you know, even the Beatitudes and everything, he said, you've heard it said. He's telling you, this is the law, but this won't, this won't be enough anymore. It's what's on the inside that comes out. It has to start here first, and then you do. You do because you are. And their instruction, remember, repent, and do. <laughs> remember, repent, and do. And the promise was the overcomer will be given the right to eat from the tree of life, which is like the ultimate, you know, that's what we're looking for. Um, so in 1 Peter 4.17, we're going through this series because it says that judgment needs to begin in the house, the family of God first. Why? Because we are the body of Christ. And who we are... What they see, what the world sees, is not Dale, Denny, Jody, you know, Kurt. It, 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 they see God. Who we are, they don't just say, oh, well, well, that's just Rob. They say, oh, that's God. Come on, you've heard it said that way. Oh, so if I don't come to church just because they're all hypocrites, and if that's God... Because we are the body. That's how he orchestrated it. He set it up that way. He said, they'll know me. God's saying, the world will know me by the love you have for each other. He put it that way. He set it up that way. So if the, our community is not seeing a healthy, united body in love and joy, you know, united together, then they see what? They don't just say, oh, that's that church. See, I knew God was like that. Oh, and then you start, you know, talking about, well, you know, so-and-so at church did this and that. They don't say, oh, well, that's just so-and-so. They go, I knew God was like that. So how we are. And so judgment needs to start in our house first. Not just here. Hello. Yes, this is a house. But this house is a representation of your house. What happens in your house behind closed doors is what we see here. So judgment needs to start first. See, we want to, we're quick to judge the White House. We're quick to judge somebody else's house. We're quick to judge, you know, the beggar on the street's house. But don't look at my house. And this is where it needs to start. So we're going to jump into the second church, the church at Smyrna, Smyrna. Um, and let me just give you some history about the church, and then we'll read the couple scriptures, and then we'll do what we did last week, hopefully a lot faster, um, and go verse by verse. Listen, Smyrna was an ancient city on the west coast of Asia Minor, situated at the head of the gulf into which the Hermes River flows. It was located 40 miles north of Ephesus. That was a church we talked about last week. That was the first church. Actually, uh, Smyrna is located between Ephesus and the next church we'll talk about, not next week, but the week after, which is Pergamum. Pergamum. 
it was situated right between. It's the site, the site of Smyrna is the present day Turkish city of Izmir. Smyrna was famous for its beauty as ancient writers noted, marveling at how Mount Pegasus was crowned with a circle of beautiful public buildings. In 197 BC, after Smyrna severed its relationship with the Pergamus ruler, King Eumenes, it asked the Roman Empire for aid. The people of the city, because they had never established any ties to the Roman Empire, sought to create a bond by creating a Roman-based cult. The Rome cult of Smyrna soon spread to other locations which led to the worship of their pagan gods. In AD 29, seven cities competed for the right to build a temple to the emperor Tiberius. Smyrna was chosen and became the temple warden. It acquired another temple under the emperor Hadrian. Archaeologists have discovered coins portraying Nero, dedication, dedications to the emperors Titus and Domitian, and statues of Domitian, Trajan, and Hadrian. These artifacts all demonstrate Smyrna's devotion to the Roman emperors. Smyrna was the most important seaport in Asia Minor because of its location on the edge of the trade route. The Agora, the Agora marketplace in Smyrna was the largest marketplace in the ancient world. Throughout the Roman period, Smyrna was held to guilds, was home to guilds of basket fishermen, tanners, silversmiths, and goldsmiths. Membership in these guilds included sacrificing to a pagan deity and most likely to the emperor as well. It also required participation in a common meal dedicated to a pagan deity. This brought severe persecution to Christians in these trades under these requirements. So you're getting a picture of who Smyrna, Smyrna, why is my tongue just wants to be bigger than my mouth today? All right, well, let's read Revelations 2, starting with verse 8, and then we're going to go through these line by line real quick. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. 
It's living, active, it's alive, it's life to us. And right now we just open our hearts, we till up that soil of our hearts to receive the seed of your word into good soil. God, that we wouldn't just be hearers of your word, but we'll be doers of your word, that we'll be the living light and living love, epistles known and read by all men, that we would be, God, the true picture of your body and love and unity. In Jesus' name, amen. He said, these are the words of him. Again, Jesus reminds the church. This is not John's words. These are my words. And he says, of the first and the last, I was dead, but I am alive now. And this was important because he was about ready to tell them that even to the point of death, (laughs) and even if you do die, don't worry, just like me, you will live. In verse 9, he says, I know your afflictions. Hebrews 4.15 says that we have a high priest who is Jesus, who is able to empathize, not sympathize, empathize. There's a difference. Sympathize means, oh, I'm sorry you feel that way. Empathize is, I know exactly what you're feeling because I was there too. Empathy means I've felt it. I know, not just, I'm sorry you feel that way. Boy, I don't know what you're going through. Jesus, our high priest, knows. He empathizes with our afflictions. He knows them, it says. He knows our pain and our suffering because he's felt it all. He bore it all. As in uh, Isaiah 53, 4. 53, 4. And you're all writing this down, right? I see your message note cards and your pens and you're making these notes to look it up later. Isaiah 53, 4 says, He bore which means he actually took upon himself our pain, our sicknesses, sorry, our sicknesses and our diseases. And he carried our pain and our suffering. He took it all, everything that everyone would ever experience, he took it upon himself when he went to the cross. And even before he went to the cross at the whipping post, it said every lash upon him was a breaking off of our sicknesses, our diseases, our pain, our suffering. And Isaiah 53, 4, or 5 says that it is by his wounds, his stripes, his scourging that we are, have been, already are Healed, saved, sozoed, completely healed, inside and out. Already have been. He goes on to say, and your poverty. Poverty is the state of being inferior in quality and insufficient in amount. Yet he said, but you're not. You're rich. I I know your affliction. 
and your poverty, yet you are rich. You're not poor. You're rich. You're not in poverty. You're rich. The value of an object is determined by the price someone will pay to have it for themselves. And all of heaven, we've heard it said before, was bankrupted. He sold everything. He gave his best, his one and only son, to pay for what Jesus called in Matthew, um, the pearl of great price, you. You. He redeemed you. He purchased you. He purchased me back. He paid the ultimate price. So don't say you're uh, in poverty, the state of being insufficient in quality or, or lack of. You're not poor. You're not in poverty. Not in yourself and not in your circumstances. Because even when your resources seem to be limited by what you see does not mean you are not rich. If you are in right standing, right standing with God who is your heavenly father, you, are, you have been adopted by God, you are co-heirs with Christ, can poverty be even found on the lips of Jesus that saying that you are, or I am. Oh, we're just poor. No, he says, I own it all. Everything is mine. So to say that you are in poverty is a wrong mindset. It's actually you're believing a lie. Because the enemy wants you to believe, look, there's your heavenly father. Oh, he's rich. He has everything. Why don't you? See, he don't care about you. Come on, I'm only speaking the things that go through your mind. God must want me to be this way. Where does that come in the Bible? That he wants me to be in need. He wants me to be in lack. He don't want me to have anything. Show me that. Because I can't find it in the Bible. Why? Because if his children don't have, they can't give. They can't fund the ministry. They can't send the missionaries. They can't help the, the homeless. They can't feed the hungry. If you're always hungry and you need somebody to come feed you, how are you going to feed other people? So it's not true. So even though our, our eyes might see a lack in our resources does not mean we are poor. Or it's God's plan for us. We just have to be trained. We have to learn how to step into the authority in order to make the withdrawals from the account that's already been given to us. And then how to be good stewards of what's given to us so that what? He'll continue to give us more. Now those are written in the Bible. That is principles written in the Bible. That he won't give you more if you're not being a good steward of what he's given you. Actually, he says, okay, fine. You don't want to use this? I'm going to take this little bit from you, and I'm going to give it to somebody else who has a whole lot more because they're being good with it. And we're like, oh, well, that's not God. 
Well, yeah, it is. Because why would he continue to give into a broken vessel that continues to just leak out? He is never, never wasteful. And the miracles of the, the multiplication, when he fed all the multitudes, he can take the little and he can multiply it and feed a lot, but he's not wasteful. He's like, go pick up the leftovers. Why? Because I got plans for them too. So he's not wasteful in any way. So he won't continue to give to somebody who's just hoarding, eating it for themselves, tucking it away, and well, it's mine, it's mine. I feel like, it's, I just watched Lord of the Rings last night, and it's like, oh, precious, it's mine, it's mine. They ring. <laughs> Sorry, if I had the Gollum voice, I would do it. Call them, call them. No, but anyway, um, he's not going to. And it really is a matter of authority to invoke the drawing from to make the withdrawals. Because if I was to go into a bank knowing that Dale has a million dollars in his bank account, I can go up and say, I demand that million dollars removed from Dale's bank account. They're like, what authority do you have to pull from his account? <laughs> right? Exactly the same. That we can cry and whine, throw, I mean, I could throw myself on the bank floor, but you don't know how big of a need I have. I need this, and you know, and you promise this, and you promise. They're like, you don't have any authority. It's being able to learn how to use the authority that's been given us to make the withdrawals and then be the good stewards of it. So we, he, he said, I know, you think you're in poverty, but you're not, you're rich. And he says, I know the slander. The intense opposition came from those who were at one time the closest to God, the Jews. These were the Jews of Smyrna who had physical circumcision, but lacked the circumcision of the heart. Slander is speaking out against somebody t that actually um, mocks, destroys, hurts their character. Slander is what a lot of Christians do and, and just think nothing of it because, well, you know, everybody talks like that. Doesn't mean everybody's supposed to talk like that. And as a matter of fact, go back. Uh, last month, I think it was, I did a message called, Whose Table Are You Setting At? And it was all from that vision God gave me of that courtroom, that there's only two tables in the courtroom. There's the, the defendant table, and there's the prosecuting table. Um, and, and the prosecutor is the accuser of the brethren. He is the one who will slander. He lives to slander and accuse God's children to God and everybody else. So when you speak out against or you slander somebody else, well, you know, uh, and it could just be in a passing comment, and I'll bring up the beggar on the street corner again. Well, if 
they'd just get a job. A thousand places are hiring. If they'd just get a job, they wouldn't be begging for money. Why do they want my money? That's slander. And Jesus was saying, I know the slander. I know your slander, what you're getting. And it's from the ones that are supposed to be the closest to me. He, he's not deaf to what we say. As a matter of fact, remember over and over again, he says, I'm keeping record of what you say. And you will have to give an account for every word you speak. And he says, they are a synagogue of Satan. Jesus called the religious leaders of his day whitewashed tombs. He said, you're full of death on the outside, but you make yourself look so pretty. You know, on the inside, but on the outside, you make yourself look so pretty. And he said, and then when you do make a convert, you make them twice as much a son of hell as you are. <laughs> yeah, he was, come on. He says, they are a synagogue of Satan. Now, let me give you a little history again, cultural understanding of these days. The separation that the Jews were making against the Christians at that time. Uh, under the Roman, because they asked, you know, Rome to come in. And under the governmental law at that time was they actually gave... Um, leniency, I guess a good word would be, to the Jews and called them a religious sect so that they didn't they weren't forced to worship their pagan gods and you know do the sacrifices and come to the temple and you know participate in these meals they gave them um I'm missing the right word for it, but um, so every time the Jews said the Christians aren't among us, it would push the Christians under Roman law. And now it would force them, oh, well, you're not protected anymore under that religious sect. Now you have to bow down to these temple gods. You have to sacrifice. Otherwise, you will be considered a lawbreaker. And at that time, it wasn't a little ticket they would get and go pay the fine. Yeah, yeah, or beatings or, or whatever. It, it was serious. Verse 10, he says, do not be afraid. This was not a casual reminder. This was a direct commandment. As a matter of fact, when you study, do not be afraid, there is actually 365 verses, one for every day of the year, to remind you, do not fear. You know why it's so important? Because fear feeds distrust. Fear means I can't trust. And God does not want you to treat him as if he is not a faithful God. You can trust him. I mean, how do you like it as a parent for your child to say, um, what are we having for dinner? Well, I'm making such and such. Well, I don't know. She's going to feed me today. Well, you'd be like, get back here. What? Do I always feed you? Yes. Will I continue to feed you? Yes. Until I kick you out of the home. And no, but. So fear feeds distrust. 
So 365 verses, one for every day. It's not a casual reminder. Oh, don't fear. It's do not fear. Why? Fear is the absence of perfect love. Perfect love casts out all fear. Perfect love means I can trust you with my whole heart, my whole being. I might not see what's coming. I might not understand what I'm going through. But I completely trust that's perfect love. And fear will eat away at that perfect love and that trust. He says, you are about to suffer. <laughs> we, and we attacked this one last week, so I won't get into it really big. But Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. Hello. So don't be oh, surprised when it comes. It's coming. Either you're in it now, you're in some trouble, suffering, affliction time now, or it's coming. It's okay, though, because he, he said, and again, last week we really got into it, and I think this is Matthew 16, um, 33. Did I write that down? Yeah. John 16, 33. Um, he said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. Which is a good way to say, trust in your heart. Yeah, do not fear. Trust in your heart. And have peace in your mind. Why? Because I have overcome them. Well, some of them. No, he said all. All of it. And then he even tells them, so cheer up. Right? Come on. I know I keep going to parent and stuff, but at one time, and if you haven't, um, please come see me and I'll teach you how to do this. In your child's life, you have to discipline them. Right? They do something wrong, you have to discipline them. And then what happens? You, I, have, I have to tell my boys, well, had to back when they were smaller, cheer up. Man, punishment time's over. You've already been disciplined. We already discussed it. You've already been disciplined. It's over. Cheer up now. Forget it. Let it go. Let it go. No, okay. Right? If they walk around, oh, it's like, what are you still moping for? We already took care of it. Jesus is saying the same thing. Suffering is going to come. Trouble is going to come. But cheer up. Take heart, which means don't fear. Don't fear. Trust in your heart. Peace in your mind. I've overcome them all. Now cheer up. And I'm going to show you some more why this is so, why this is um, good news. When afflictions and troubles come, you're like, yeah, it is. But let me tell you this. When you allow worry, stress, and anxiety in your life, you're opening the door wide open for the thief to come in. Worry, anxiety, and stress. We've been commanded to hold on to the promises of God, right? Why? Because that's what builds us hope. It's coming, you know. This is, he's overcome them all. He's going to find a way. And we'll get into that scripture in just a little bit. But the three pictures for worry, anxiety, and stress is somebody wringing their hands. What can you hold on to if you're doing this? Mm, biting their nails. <laughs> right? And oh, none of which opens your hands to hold on to the word. You hold on to the word, worry, anxiety, and stress have to go out the door. 
the devil, he goes on to say, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. Nobody likes this part. The enemy is real, and his mission is to steal, kill, and destroy. Steal, kill, and destroy. He wants to steal that trust away from you that you have in God. He wants to steal your heart, steal your hope. He wants to kill your faith. He wants to kill your flesh. And he wants to destroy you, which the ultimate destruction, destroying, is getting you to die before your time when you're away from God so that you will then be in eternity separated from God. It's the ultimate destruction. Steal, kill, and destroy. We have a real enemy. That's his mission. But he says, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. To test you. What does he do? We talked about this a little bit Wednesday. Um, he pokes you. Pokes you. Oh! <clears throat> and you, Meow! flare up this way, or you... Oh, or he, you get the healing, right? We had, we've had lots of healings all the time. I just love it now. Um, but the minute you walk away from the healing, you've got, I don't even know. I mean, like, you know, the pain was completely gone. I probably get at least, I don't want to exaggerate, at least five times a day. Some days it's more, depending on what I do. You know, I have been completely healed. My back three different diagnoses, three different, you know, all that junk, three different doctors saying it, you'll never, it's all downhill, you know, get the surgery now. I'm completely healed. But every once in a while, I get a poke at my back and I go, and immediately a thought comes to my mind, see, you're not healed. I'm like, oh, that's a lie. It's a poke. He's testing you. Oh, see, God don't love you. You're not healed. Oh, you feel this? Oh, you think that? Oh, you see this? See? God's not real. And he'll just poke at you. What's he doing? He's testing you. Testing you. Testing you. And if he continues to poke the same button and gets the same re fleshly reaction from you, I mean, can you just picture for a second some little imp that's just stupid, stupid, like the little gremlins, you know, that's just... <laughs> And making you react the same way. You know, the little, you know, jack in the box. <laughs> do it again. Oh, do it again, you know. That's what he's doing to you. If he continues to get the same reaction out of you, why change buttons? So he's going to put some of you, you might as well go ahead. I mean, this is one that would be nice. Well, that must be for other people, not for me. But he's going to test all of us. He tests all of us all the time. He pokes at all of us all the time. So when you do get poked and something other than God and all his goodness comes out and you go, oh, where did that come from? I didn't even know I had that word in my mind. And it comes out, what are you supposed to do? <laughs> Repent quickly. Oh, Lord Jesus, I'm so sorry. Thank you, God, that you allowed Satan to poke me that way, to show me that was in there. Now that it's out, you can keep it out. That's not coming back in here. Rectify the situation. Apologize openly if you need to. Usually you do. 
And the next time he comes and pokes, you can go, thank you, Jesus, you healed me from that. That's no longer in there. He's not going to push that button anymore. He won't push that button anymore. Don't forget, feelings do not trump truth. Just because you feel it doesn't mean it's true. God's word is truth, period. And number two, we do not, we're not fighting against flesh and blood. So if your poke is coming from somebody else, your spouse, your kids, your boss, whoever, the poke is coming from somebody else, you have to remind yourself that person is not my enemy. And it, it, don't yell out, I see you, Lucifer, you know, don't do that, you know, <laughs> it's you, Satan, you know, and they're like, what, you know, okay, d just, you know, unless God's telling you to, what's your name, demon, no, um, but it's not that person. If you're being tested or poked at by another person, just go right back to this scripture, it's okay, you know, God, you're allowing this time to test me. And it's not, I like Matthew Henry said, it's not that God needs to um, find out what's in you. Hello? He already knows what's in you. He allows you to be tested so you can know what's in you. He allowed Satan to test, tempt his own son. Why? Because he had just spoken and said, this is my son in whom I love. I'm well pleased. This is him, right? This is my son. Now, do you think he was taking him away? Well, I have heard it both ways. So yes, to confirm within himself, I am. But I think at his age, I think he knew who he was. It was to show us when you are going through these times of testing, tempting, whatever. This is how you fight and what you fight with. And it's that double-edged sword that we talked about on Wednesday night. It's not just supposed to be in your hand. It has to be spoken out of your mouth to cut can't just be in your hand. It has to be spoken out. Jesus could have just sat there and thought wonderful things. I'm not listening to you. I hear you, but I'm not listening to you. No, he spoke back. He didn't spoke back, speak back in accusation. He didn't speak back in, in anger or, or what. He just spoke the word. He was teaching us. He goes on to say, you will suffer persecution for 10 days. First, let me say that in, these, in the 10 days that he's talking about, um, there's a lot of theologians that believe that it was very specific for that church at that time. It was a literal time. But it's also a figurative time as in we will all be tested but it will only last for a period of time. 
And how long? God knows. God knows how long. And that should give us hope and comfort that when we're facing these trials and troubles that will come, that they're not going to last forever. God knows it's coming. He knows how long it's going to last. And he also knows how to get you out of that. What? To give you strength to stand up while you walk through it. And see, I told you that I had to uh, repent of the understanding I had for so long. I was misunderstanding that scripture, which I think I did write down. Yeah, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Uh, that no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. But with a temptation, God won't allow you to be tempted. Blah, blah, blah. But he'll make a way of escape. But it says, so that you can stand up. So it's not that he's going to see you're starting to go through a hard time and pluck you out of it. Oh, poor little Brenda. I saw you was going through that. That's what I believed. But no, it, it actually means that he sees there's a light at the end of this tunnel. You continue to walk it with me. It's not going to last forever. There is an end to it. I've got a place for you to go. Continue to walk. Now you got the strength to continue to go through. So your, your persecution, your tempting, your trial, your testing might only last 10 days. Might be 100 days. Might be one day. But he knows how long. And that should give us comfort, hope. He goes on to say, be faithful even to the point of death. And this is actually the instruction that he's given. This is what you need to do. Be faithful even to the point of death. And being full of faith takes, it's not, listen, again, you, full of faith. Faith is not an inward uh, Belief. Oh, I just believe it, and so it's just going to automatically happen to me. Because Hebrews 11 goes through that list of these are the men and women of faith. And what does it record? Their deeds. What they did. And it says it's this kind of faith. You cannot please God without this kind of faith. What kind of faith was he talking about? Faith and deeds, which is in James, where it says faith and deeds have to go together. It's having the inward, yes, conviction, unmovable, it, I will not bend. But that that's what I take that step of faith on, and I take the risk, and I continue to press on. Even in, like he said, even in the face of death, even to the point of death. His first promise, he gives two promises for doing that. The first one's for earth and the second one's for eternity. And the first one for earth, he said, and I will give you the crown of life. And again, I don't believe that this is the crown of life when we get there. Because he says, I want you to... The point of death. He's talking about getting to the point of death. Be faithful up to the point of death. Now, if you die, you're still going to live. But he's talking about giving them a crown of life that we wear on this side of eternity. That we rule over, we reign over death. What? Just like he did. That's how we're supposed to live now. We're dead to sin. 
Death no longer has mastery over us. He says, don't even fear what men can do to your flesh. It has no consequences on me at all. It's not even a thought in my mind. I will be faithful even to the point of death. And he says, you do that, and I'm going to give you a crown of life that you're going to wear on this side of eternity. Why? So all of hell can see death can't touch you. You rule over death. Oh, 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 oh. I like that. And then the second promise. Oh, and by the way, that was the word that was given to us today, which is John eleven twenty five and 26. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he died, or even if he dies, will live. Kevin Zadai said, everyone wants resurrection power, but no one wants to die. Isn't that true? Can we just get past all this death stuff and let's just crown and nice robe and ring on the finger and money and, you know. Yeah, no, there's death. (laughs) Death and life. Jesus said, don't forget these are my words. I was the first and the last. I was dead and now I'm alive again. And he said, he who has an ear, let him hear. Again, we got into this last week, again this week. And every church ends with the same um, call. You have an ear. God made ears for a reason on your body to hear him. To hear him. And he's calling us to hear, understand, and respond accordingly. And he says, to him who overcomes was a reward. Every one of these churches ends with this statement. The overcomer And we talked about it last week, that there's overcomers and there's squanderers. If you're not an overcomer, you're a squanderer. You can't call me that. Yeah, you are. Because you either do or you don't. You either are or you aren't. There's only one or the other. If you're not an overcomer, you're a squanderer and a squanderer is somebody who is wasteful and not a good steward. Um, they're full of excuses. You ever poke somebody like that? Where it's like, where were you? And they've got a thousand excuses. I tell my staff all the time, if I'm running late or whatever, I'm not even going to give you an excuse. I hate excuses. Can't stand them. There was an old country song. Oh, I'm sure all of you in Evan's family area know. But... Uh, Oh, see, now it does, that song just left my mind. Excuses, excuses, I hear them every day. Right? Aha! There you go. See, I knew that somebody would pick that up. Excuses, excuses. Squanderer. Squanderer. And we learned two things last week. that overcomers do what's important. You cannot be an overcomer and not do what's important. To be an overcomer, it's because you did what was important. And an overcomer prioritizes what's important. And and I'm not here to guilt you into doing something that you haven't been doing. But let me just say, um, when you're talking about an overcomer and doing what's important, it's not going to be comfortable. 
It's not going to be easy. And it's never the choice your flesh wants. When you get home from working a long day, you just get home because you was running late and then there was traffic and then you get home and you're shoving food in your face and you sit down and you look at your watch and oh, I've got 15 minutes to get to church because it's prayer. What does your flesh scream? Right? Squanderer. Let's make excuses why we can't go. Let's just waste our time because really if an uh, overcomer prioritizes what's important. And let me ask you, again, I'm not trying to guilt you or nothing, but I have to do this all the time because I don't, I don't feel like getting up in the morning, getting ready and coming here and pre... I don't feel like doing a lot of things I do, but I prioritize what's important. So when I look at my chair, my comfy clothes, my slippers... I put them in one hand and prayer meeting in the other hand, what's important? No contest. I'm going to have to stand. You're going to have to. We're all going to have to stand before God and give an account of what we did and did not do. And not having enough time sitting in my comfy chair with my slippers on is not going to come to my mouth. Well, God, I had a long day. It's not going to be there. It's not important. So we have to, to become an overcomer. We have to be able to prioritize and do what's important. And then in closing, and I want, you to sh I want to show you this, Revelations 20, he says, you will not be hurt by the second death. And in Revelations chapter, I think it's 20. He says what that second death is. Verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And the books were all opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The second death. He said to him who overcomes... I will two things. On this earth, give you a crown of life. You'll rule over death. So death can't touch you on this side. And it's not going to touch you on the other side either. You rule over death. Who? Those who are faithful even to the point of death. So... I'm going to ask you a couple questions. They're going to play some music like we've been doing for a while. If you would stand. I want to ask you a couple questions as we open up the altar. We're going to have the staff praying for you. The altar workers praying for you. Um, and then this is not a closing. Nobody leaves at this time. 
We spend time up here cementing in what God has been sowing in. And then the, all, the worship team will come back and we'll do a closing song together and be released then. Um, but let me just give you a picture. In You know, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. The New Testament written in Greek. The Greek word Smyrna is the Hebrew word for myrrh. Myrrh, that perfumed oil, if you will, was used in life and in death, in burial. It was also one of the three gifts that was given to the baby Jesus. Crown of life and a preserving through death. God doesn't make mistakes. When you start digging into his word, you're going to find jewels that are just, I don't know about you, but it, I mean, sometimes I want them to hook up those little electrode things, not like electroshock, but those things, because it is like I can feel my mind just start to light up in different places when I'm reading the Word of God and He shows me little nuggets like that. You ever look at pictures of the uh, solar system and uh, the Hubble? I, I think it was that those pictures that you can see in those vast pictures. Uh, and you see... I mean, I don't want to sound too spooky, but you see beings in them, in their creation. Yeah. Yeah, he is that big. And he is that good. And he didn't create anything by accident. So even a church located among this Roman cult right at the edge of this great trade route that is undergoing persecution and he knew he saw that way before he even said let there be light he saw that and he said I already know what's going to happen to them so you know what I'm going to call them Smyrna they're the myrrh if they remain faithful to the point of death, they're not only going to rule over, be crowned with life, they're going to have victory over death for eternity. That's the God we serve. So your trial, your trouble, your thing, your lack, your understanding, poverty, affliction, and God, where are you? He already knows. He already sees. He already knows how long it's going to last. And he's trying to tell you, cheer up. Trust me. Don't let the thief in. No worry, no anxiety, no fear. Trust me, I've got a plan. And I already see the light at the end of the tunnel. I'll be there with you. I'll be there with you. My two questions for you today is, do you struggle with the doing 
what's important in your faith? Do you struggle with doing what's important? You know, speaking those faith-filled words just aren't enough. You must have those action steps. Even to the point of death. And the second question, do you feel like you're being tested right now? Or you continue to be poked and it always gets that same response. I want to pray with you. The team wants to pray with you. And if you're on the team and this is you, get prayed for. All right? We are going to pray, number one, that, well, you're going to repent of the reaction. Because being, being made aware of what's inside of you is a good thing. God, forgive me. So you're going to repent for that. that. That's how I've been responding. Why? Because we want to become buttonless. Go ahead. Poke all you want, Satan. All you'll get is more Jesus coming out. Because that's all that's left in there. So we're going to pray with you. But we're also going to ask for you. Which when the early church... When they started undergoing these intense times of persecution, affliction, and suffering, they came together and they prayed, God, give us more of what's causing us to get persecuted. Give us more Holy Spirit boldness. That's bringing the persecution in the first place. Give us more. And it says that the place where they were praying shook with the Holy Spirit. We're going to pray that acts for all over you. All over all of us, right? We all need it. So why don't we come on in? Let's begin praying for each other. Um, we will ask questions. So if you're going to be praying with somebody, ask them specific questions. We want to pray specifically. And if you hear them say something that is not completely true, let's talk out the truth. Talk out the truth.